A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. My goal here is not to fill you with fear or anxiety or anger or anything else. I'm not even here to tell you what to think, believe it or not. My goal is to share with you the best information I can find so that at the end of the day, you are more certain of who you are and what you stand for as opposed to, uh, you know, what you're against or who you don't like. There are plenty of other media sources out there that will give you demons to wrestle. And believe it or not, it's a tried and true formula. If you want to build a large, loyal audience, tell people who who or what to hate, and they will thank you for it. In fact, they'll reward you for it richly. Whole careers have been built of it. I've got some great stuff to share today. Let me first start by thanking my sponsors, Monticello College and also LifesavingFood.com. I... I'm going to be spending some time today talking about the last three years and in particular bringing some things into focus. And I have two of the most remarkable essays that I think will help accomplish this. And I'm going to tell you up front, this is a lot to to dive into. It's going to be uncomfortable for some people because there are some uncomfortable truths that need to be faced. But I, I agree with Paul Rosenberg when he says, look, coming out of the kind of trauma that we've seen over the last three years... It's important that we recalibrate to reality rather than fantasy. In fact, I want to start with his essay. And this one just arrived in my email inbox this morning. If you haven't subscribed to freemansperspective.com, this guy just has such a beautiful take on things. He doesn't come off as bombastic or know-it-all. Just gentle wisdom in every word that I read that he writes appears to be delivered with with a true sense of love and concern for his readers. It's not a matter of, well, you know, I'm all that and I'm going to tell you what to think and here's why you ought to hang your hat on whatever I say. He just makes a lot of sense. And actually, he has done more to to call me, to to help me transition from being a red meat thrower and, uh, you know, the person who handed out demons, hey, let me give you some demons to wrestle with, into someone who hopefully is using whatever tools I have at my disposal to, to do some good, to try to, to inform in a way that, that doesn't bring more anger to the table or more fear to the situation. The title of this essay is Everyone Got It Anyway. And Paul Rosenberg says, as the year 2020 arrived, we were living and thinking as we had been in 2019, 2018, and 2017. There was plenty of fear and outrage in the world, but the levels were fairly smooth, and then unexpectedly, a long and nightmarish storm battered us. Now he says, we've all lived through three years of intimidation and fear. It has subsided now, but most people haven't processed what has happened. They haven't sorted and settled things inside themselves. And he says, this type of delay is not unusual. In fact, a great example of it was the Nazi Holocaust. Everyone knows about it now, but in the aftermath of World War II, it simply wasn't talked about. After millions of Jews were murdered as an industrial process, the remaining Jews spoke fairly little of it. In fact, he says he was told by adults who lived through it, we didn't talk about it till about 1960. And the records seem to bear that up. So he says, storms such as we've been through tend to distort human character. 
First of all, fear of invisible death seized millions of minds. Added to that was the fear of authority, repeated stoking of the initial fear, off-the-charts pressures for compliance, and a hundred clever justifications for all of the above. Even the across-the-board values like tolerance for different opinions, bodily autonomy, and free speech were trampled and discarded. Books were written and broadly promoted on why free speech was now bad. So he says, we have a lot to unwind. And we need to rebalance ourselves, to recalibrate ourselves. And we can do that in either of two ways. We can either recalibrate to reality or we can recalibrate to fantasy. Now he says, for obvious reasons, I think we need to choose reality above fantasy. But this is the more challenging choice because reality is stark It doesn't cater to human feelings. Fantasy, on the other hand, is fitted directly to emotional desires. It succeeds by painting pictures of whatever the hearers would like to be true. In the past, centering on reality couldn't be done as easily as it can now, and so people recovered slowly. For emotional reasons, it may not be terribly fast even now, but we can move ourselves ahead rather faster than slower by centering on facts. So he says, I think we should begin by facing the one essential conclusion from the entire COVID business. You ready? Everyone got it anyway. However, the disease entered the world, the mayhem that followed was sold with, we have to prevent people from getting it. So we have to begin by facing the fact that everyone got it anyway. The threats and enforcements and orders, the actions of authority and the authorized simply failed. Now, appeals to ignorance can certainly be made. Well, no one knew. We did the best we could. But the actions and enforcements of authorities still failed, and we need to grasp that first. The second point is, once we can accept the measures taken by authority failed openly, which will be hard for some people, there's a second point to hold in mind, and that is, excuses for that which failed serve fantasy rather than reality. Now, Paul Rosenberg acknowledges accepting reality can be hard. One of the best tools for helping us through the process is logic, clear and almost mathematical thinking. Logic may not help us a great deal with emotions, which are not to be summarily tossed out, but it gives us solid ground on which to stand and sort ourselves. So if everyone got it anyway, then the edicts for stopping the spread and so on were wrong, and the need to justify what failed keeps fantasy alive. Or to say it a bit more directly, number one, the entire interlocking system of authority got it wrong. Number two, attempts to make authority look good in this area should be rejected. That is beautiful and straightforward. I agree with what he's saying here. Now, he does have some last words on this. He says, Jesus was ever so right when he advised people to clean the inside first. And he says, that's exactly what I'm recommending here. There may be a time for holding people accountable, but not before recalibrating ourselves. If we don't recalibrate at least fairly well, it'll be hard to tell when we're getting out of balance. So if we want to fix things, there's really no way around fixing ourselves as a first step. If we don't do that, the rest of what we do is in danger of going either too far or not far enough. Again, that makes sense as well. So whether we feel like it or not, We must begin by recalibrating to reality, and the reality is just about everybody got it anyway. That is possibly the strongest argument I have heard yet for why it's absolutely justifiable to say no to the jab, no to the lockdowns, no to the insistence, we've got to continue this emergency and we've got to keep this state of emergency going as long as possible. 
Because no matter what they did, they being the people in authority, it did not stop the virus. Everyone got it anyway. But in the end, people lost their livelihoods. People lost their sanity. People lost, you know, their their relationships. And you still see some lingering effects of people who are, are out there, you know, very suspicious of others. You're not wearing a mask and so forth. It's still a power struggle. It's, it's a battle for compliance. Unfortunately, we've, uh, we've had more than our share in my family of, of hospital visits this year. And it's, it's a trend that, uh, sadly, I wish we could break, but it is what it is. And, you know, I, I get it. You know, well, there's sick people in the hospital, and that's why we have to do this. But, no, it's something more than that. There's, there's an almost pathological feel to the, uh, the signage everywhere and the, you know, ubiquitous masks. They have the mask enforcers, you know. And the, granted, they're much more gentle than they were, you know, at the, at the height of the pandemic back in late 2020 and through the early part of 2021. But you still see it. You know, you still see the, the military mandating, you know, certain members have to be vaccinated and masks on planes or masks here, masks there. It's a mechanism of control. And some people have seized that and, and used that to their own, you know, to their own advantage, particularly politicians. I still shake my head in absolute wonder and disgust that in uh, my home state of Idaho, you know, the, the state is still working to prosecute Sarah Brady, who was uh, arrested for trespassing when she took her kids for an outside play date at a local park. And police were called to tell everybody, get out of there. This park is closed because of COVID. Now you can say, but we didn't know that at the time. The bottom line is, though, none of that stuff was necessary. And it's not like, oh, people only knew that long after the fact. There were esteemed epidemiologists and there were people who knew what they were talking about, who were saying this from the very beginning. So it rings a bit hollow when people say, well, we just didn't have that information. You could have, but virtually all of social media and all of corporate media were doing everything they could to censor those points of view, to blacklist people, to marginalize them, to shut them down. Ooh, I feel a head of steam building up here. This is actually a good thing because I'm going to share with you a truly remarkable essay by James Howard Kunzler coming up in our next segment. If you want to get the big picture... The 30,000-foot view, he does a very good job of putting it together. Stick around. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I've been excited to share this uh, James Howard Kunzler article since I saw it on Saturday, published on LewRockwell.com. And I'm going to tell you right now, he takes a pretty harsh point of view, but uh, given some of the things that have happened, given some of the people who have, have sought to not just not just control us, but to, to upend our lives and to bring everybody down to a level of subjugation that we've never before seen. I think he draws some pretty interesting conclusions, and I don't think he's wrong in, in, in the somewhat harsh tone that he takes toward those individuals. He starts with a quote from the ethical skeptic on Substack. 
I would advise the more sciencey than thou to not pivot from COVID directly into climate change bullying just yet. 2023 is going to be replete with excess death, and you are going to have a lot of explaining to do. Lots of apologetic to push in support of the narrative. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, even if NBC, CBS, CNN, the New York Times, the WashPo, and the rest of the big news media mafia ignore the Twitter file story, the revolution at Twitter is going to shake their windows and rattle their walls. There will be free debate in 2023 on this social media platform. News and ideas will be set loose across the landscape, and for the first time in years, reality will have a chance to compete with the bad faith narratives of a regime at war against its own people. See, he's not holding back, is he? He says, we'll have to see how long this lasts before the Intel community tries to shut down Twitter, ramp up a campaign to defame it, or blow it up as a viable business. Or make a move to, shall we say, neutralize the person behind the revolution there. The more that free speech is actually permitted on Twitter, the more every other platform will look like a lame organ of propaganda. Especially when it comes to issues that really matter such as the deadly consequences of the mRNA vaccines, the shady doings around recent U.S. elections, the actual condition of the U.S. economy, the perilous folly of Joe Biden's war in Ukraine and the family grifting operation that prompted it, and the evil machinations of the intel community itself. Now he says in about three weeks, the party of chaos will be swept out of power in the U.S. House of Representatives. Their opponents will take control of all the House committee chairs with subpoena power to compel the testimony of public figures who have managed to avoid answering questions for years. The big news media may not be able to avoid reporting on it, especially with Twitter loosened up. And their lying attempts to spin events is going to look pathetic when it's instantly contrasted with free analysis and informed debate in the public arena. James Howard Kunstler says you can't overstate what an advantage the insidious takeover of social media gave to forces seeking to wreck the country, though the effects have not been adequately explored yet. The people remain bamboozled over the COVID-19 operation especially. It certainly wasn't some random act by Mother Nature, not with U.S. public health agencies supporting gain-of-function research on coronaviruses from Ukraine to North Carolina to Wuhan, China and the subsequent damage caused by the government's response to the outbreak was either an inept fiasco of, of an epic fiasco rather of inept officialdom or something that smells like mass murder dr anthony fauci's little trick so far to avoid answering questions about these matters was simply not to use the term gain of function in his correspondence arranging grants for it especially after president barack obama banned that type of research by its name in 2014 so when asked about gain of function, he could just lie with abandon. After that simple ruse is, expo is exposed, the patent and royalty benefits enjoyed by Dr. Fauci, who doubled his net worth after 2019, will be dragged into the light of day. Now, it's doubtful that Merrick Garland's uber-corrupt DOJ would follow up on any referral for criminal prosecution issued by a House committee. But guess what? There are 50 states' attorneys general who have standing to prosecute Dr. Fauci over injuries to their state citizens. It appears that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, for one, has noticed the possibility, and this week asked Florida's top court to convene a special grand jury to consider exactly that. 
Now, the other players involved have plenty to answer for, too. Rochelle Walensky, CDC, has deliberately concealed, misled, obfuscated, and opted to not even collect information about injuries and deaths from COVID vaccines. Her agency did nothing to update the inadequate, difficult-to-use VAERS reporting system or even communicate the very bad news that managed to land on it. The CDC is still aggressively pushing vaccines on children, knowing full well that it damages young hearts, brains, immune systems, and probably the kids' very DNA. Probably few would recognize the name Dr. Robert Califf in his second go-around as commissioner of the FDA. He served one year from 2016 to 17 under Obama, confirmed again in February of 2022. Dr. Califf has been a tool of the pharma companies for decades. Earlier in his career as a professor at Duke University, he specialized in organizing drug trials. His operation there was supported by over $150 million in grants from pharma, even despite deep state control of social media prior to Elon Musk's cleanup of Twitter. Of Twitter rather, a lot was already known about the botched and faked drug trials that led the FDA's conditional emergency approval of Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA COVID-19 products along with the official suppression of existing antiviral drugs that could have saved a million lives, which was done directly to preserve the vaccine's liability shields. A finding of fraud in all this would vitiate the pharma company's protection against lawsuits, and there was fraud galore in the entire, in the whole wicked business, he says. Kunstler says others have, been, others have to be called to face the new music in Congress. Self-styled humanitarian Bill Gates whose fingerprints are all over the COVID-19 story. From the pandemic war game, Event 201 that he sponsored, held in fall of 2019, to his vested interest in pharma, to his connections with the shadowy operations of the World Economic Forum and its state population reduction initiative. Dr. Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina, indisputably the preeminent expert on coronavirus gain-of-function research and knee-deep in the COVID-19 episode, who's magically been able to hide under the rock the past three years, could shed a lot of light in public testimony on what happened. And Peter Daszak, head of the CIA cutout organization EcoHealth Alliance, which helped enable the move of -of gain-of-function research to the Wuhan lab explicitly, Dazak himself explained in a notorious recording at a symposium to create opportunities to profit from a pandemic response. Now, there are countless high officials of the deputy director and commissioner rank unknown to the public who could be called to testify about their agency's contribution to the catastrophe that COVID-19 response turned out to be. Almost all of them have been laying low since the whole thing started. Meantime, Mr. Musk has announced that Twitter is preparing release of all of its archives containing communication with federal agencies that sought to control and suppress discussion of the pandemic 2020 to 2022. He added snarkily that his personal pronouns are prosecute and Fauci, in case there's any misunderstanding about what he's learned from the files. So James Howard Kunstler says what's liable to come out of all of this in 2023 is a grotesque spewage about, of information about official corruption and misconduct that will make the projectile vomiting from the exorcist look like a mere satanic loogie in comparison. He says you have to wonder how the nation will handle it, especially with the extremely uncomfortable fact that Joe Biden, in quotation marks, still occupies the White House. Do you think maybe this is why we're seeing such an incredible push 
to clamp down on free speech or to portray free speech as dangerous kind of makes you wonder. James Howard Kunstler, by the way, I think has has been one of the good, you know, big picture voices out there to, to really lay it on the line. And I'm, I'm not saying everything he says is absolutely, you know, beyond question. I'm just saying this guy seems pretty good at connecting the dots. So if you want to get a good, accurate feel of what's going on, you could do a lot worse than uh, checking out what he's saying. All right. I'm going to calm down here for a moment. Go put a cool wash rag on my head. And we'll continue just the other side of these commercial messages. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would invite you, please, visit my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Down at the bottom of my show notes, you'll see a big subscribe button. Drop me your email address. I'll send you a copy every day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks for sticking with me so far. If, especially if you're a first-time listener or new to the program, I understand I can get a little bit intense. This, And, and I, I fully accept the idea. This program is not for everybody. Just like, you know, not everybody appreciates the taste of root beer. I know, I know. We had a Saudi Arabian student live with us a few years back, and, you know, my family loves root beer. Oh, a root beer float? You bet. You know, we love the taste of root beer. Oh, we gave poor Salah a glass of root beer. Here, give it a try. And he took one swig and was just, that tastes like medicine. (laughs) So if this isn't your thing, I'm not going to be offended. I I don't think you're stupid and I don't think you're bad because, well, you don't want to listen. I just understand that uh, not everybody is ready for this particular perspective. and, And that's okay. Because for the people who are, that's why I do what I do. I know there are people out there that are earnestly seeking after truth, even hard truths that are not necessarily comfortable or that feel good on your ears, but they do it because they know it matters. And, and I think they, they know it matters because they understand at some level it's not enough just to know and, and, and to comprehend what's going on. We have to understand what we can be doing as individuals to, to build whatever comes next, to be the light in the darkness for those who are still you know trying to find their way out of that swamp of misinformation. That doesn't make us better than anybody else, by the way. It just means, you know, we we have a duty to help people. If you understand what's going on, if you get the gravity of what's going on, you have a duty, first of all, not to fall prey to the misinformation that's that's being spewed at us 24-7. But you also have a duty to help those who are trying to find their way out of the, the, the swamp. All right, having said that, let's talk more about free speech. I mentioned in the sharing James Kunstler's uh, article about uh, how, you know, with the Democrats about to lose control of the House, they are very concerned they will not have control of the narrative any longer. We've got a great article here from Jonathan Turley about uh, this is why the Democrats are telling, Democratic members of Congress are telling uh, Facebook, do not backslide on censorship. Turley says, with the restoration of free speech protections on Twitter, Panic has grown on the left that its control over social media could come to an end. Now some of the greatest advocates of censorship in Congress are specifically warning Facebook not to follow Twitter in restoring free speech to its platform. 
In a chilling letter from Representatives Adam Schiff from California, Andre Carson of Indiana, Kathy Castor from Florida, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, Facebook was given a not-so-subtle threat that reducing its infamous censorship system will invite congressional action. The letter to Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, is written on congressional stationery as part of our ongoing oversight efforts. Ooh, it's all official then, huh? With House Republicans pledging to investigate social media censorship when they take control in in January, rather, these four Democratic members are trying to force Facebook to recommit to censoring opposing views, and to make election censorship policies permanent. Otherwise, they suggest they may be forced to exercise oversight into any move by Facebook to alter or roll back certain misinformation policies. You understand what's happening there? As Congress, we can't uh, legally, via that stupid Bill of Rights, we can't, you know, infringe on people's free speech. But we can certainly force a private company like Facebook or other social media companies to do so on our behalf. I know it sucks. A lot of those companies have gone along with it. But anyway, Jonathan Turley says, in addition to demanding that Facebook preserve its bans on figures like former President Donald Trump, they want Facebook to expand its censorship overall because unlike other major social media platforms, Meta's policies do not prohibit posts that make unsubstantiated claims about voter fraud. They're really nervous about that for some reason. You notice that? Huh, I wonder why. Clegg has given Schiff's telephone number to discuss Facebook's compliance, an ironic contact point for a letter on censoring disinformation. After all, Schiff was one of the members of Congress who, before the 2020 presidential election, pushed the false claim that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. He's been criticized for pushing false narratives on Trump-Russia collusion in the 2016 election. Schiff has previously pressured social media companies to expand the censorship of opposing views. I'm resisting the urge to make some kind of a joke about uh, this congressman's name, but I'll move on. The letter to Clegg is reminiscent of another letter sent by several congressional Democrats to cable TV carriers last year demanding to know why they continue to carry Fox News. Now, Jonathan Turley says, for full disclosure, I do appear as a legal analyst on Fox News. And he says, as I later discussed in congressional testimony, it was an open effort by those Democrats to censor opposing views by proxy or by surrogate. This is not the first time that some members of Congress have not so subtly warned social media companies to expand the censorship of political and scientific views, which they consider to be wrong. In a November 2020 Senate hearing, then-Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey apologized for censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story. But Senator Richard Blumenthal warned that he and his Senate colleagues would not tolerate any backsliding or retrenching by failing to take action against dangerous misinformation. Others like Senator Elizabeth Warren have called on social media companies to use enlightened algorithms to protect people from their own bad choices. After all, as President Joe Biden asked without censorship and wise editors, how do people know the truth? (laughs) Yeah. Now, Turley says Democrats fear Facebook and other social media companies might backslide into free speech as Facebook, among others, is faced with declining revenues and ordering layoffs. Now, tellingly, these congressional Democrats specifically want assurances that these layoffs will not reduce the staff dedicated to censoring social media. Turley says it's not hard to see the cause for alarm. This hold-the-line warning is meant to stop a cascading failure in the once insurmountable wall of social media censorship. 
If Facebook were to restore free media spe- or free speech protections, rather, the control over social media would evaporate. Despite an effort by the left to boycott Twitter and cut off advertising revenues, users are signing up in record numbers to Twitter owner, according to Twitter owner Elon Musk, and a recent poll shows a majority of Americans support Elon Musk's ongoing efforts to change Twitter to a more free and transparent platform. So the pressure on Facebook is ironic, given the company's previous effort to get the public to accept or even welcome censorship. The company ran a creepy ad campaign about how young people should accept censorship or content moderation in today's Orwellian parlance as part of their evolution with technology. It didn't work. Most people are not eager to buy into censorship. Instead, many of them are apparently buying into Twitter. The public response has led censorship advocates to look for look abroad for allies. So figures like Hillary Clinton have called upon European countries to force the censorship of American citizens. Citizen, or censorship, says Turley, comes at a cost not only to free speech, but clearly to these companies. Nevertheless, some members of Congress are demanding Facebook and other companies offer the last full measure of devotion to the cause of censorship. Despite the clear preference of the public for more free speech, Facebook is being asked to turn its back on them and its shareholders and continue to exclude dissenting views on issues ranging from COVID to climate change. These members know that censorship only works if there are no alternatives. The problem is there are alternatives. Fox News reportedly has more Democrats watching it than its left-leaning rival, uh, CNN, which now faces its own massive cuts and plummeting ratings. So whatever reason, these companies face declining interest in what they offer. Yet some Democrats are pushing them to double down on the same course of effectively writing off half the electorate and the audience market. Now, Turley says this kind of pressure worked in the past because individual executives are loath to be tagged personally in these campaigns. However, their companies are paying the price in carrying out these directives from Congress. In the past, many companies willingly, if not eagerly, in the case of pre-Musk Twitter, carried out censorship as surrogates, as the internal Twitter documents released by Musk have indicated. Some public officials knew they could circumvent the First Amendment by getting these companies to block opposing views by proxy. However, the public and the marketplace may succeed where the Constitution could not. That's exactly what these officials fear as they see control of social media erode heading toward the 2024 election. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg once famously told his company to move fast and break things. When it comes to censorship, however, these members of Congress are warning not so fast if Facebook is considering a break in favor of free speech. Interesting. I don't really want to spend a whole lot more time on social media than I already do. But I am grateful to have these alternatives. And, and really, look, I'm, I'm going to just put this out there. Creating a giant social media company, that's great. But I think this may be one of those places where thousands of smaller voices out there putting the truth out there as best they can are going to also have a very strong effect on uh, on overcoming this attempt to censor or to otherwise uh, uh, moderate content, to put it in the uh, modern parlance there, uh, on the on behalf of you know government officials and uh, their their corporate lackeys, I still think we've crossed a bit of a line in terms of well, it may be a private company, but if it's doing the government's bidding, if it's acting as a middleman for government censorship, there's a partnership that's going on there, and I don't know that uh, we should be affording all the protections of private business and respect for private property rights 
to someone who has essentially sold their soul in a buyer's market to become to become a corporate government hybrid just doesn't seem quite right. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, please check out the sponsors that I have links on my uh, website to take you right to their websites. They include Life Saving Food, Monticello College, and actually a couple of others that you may find of interest. So I've got three quick articles I want to touch on here in this uh, this last segment. Uh, the release of the Twitter files is confirming something that I don't think a lot of us really want to, con- to contemplate. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker has a marvelous article on the Brownstone Institute's website. We are still locked down. He says, just consider how fortunate we are to have the Twitter files. Every few days, we are seeing dumps of documents from the operations of Twitter before Elon Musk took over. And this weekend's release was especially shocking because it revealed a very close symbiotic relationship between the company's management and the FBI, which employs 80 people to police social networks and flag posts. In other words, they're not looking for crime. They're focused on wrong think on matters of politics. In other words, he says our worst suspicions have been confirmed. We still await the COVID files, but there will be no doubt about what they'll show in grim detail. Twitter worked with the government to throttle the reach and searchability of accounts that took issue with the main messaging of the CDC or HHS from early in the lockdowns to the present. We already knew that Facebook had deleted 7 million posts in the second quarter of 2020. Twitter pulled down some 10,000 accounts. And it's mostly open for now. The rest of the venues remain wholly controlled. Brownstone has posts tagged, throttled, sometimes deleted from LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and it's a constant struggle to avoid Google's own push against our content. He says even with even ridiculous sites with no credibility or reach appear high in search engines when our content is searched. That's not an algorithm at work. So on this basis alone, he says, it is still fair to say that we are still in lockdown nearly three years later. It's a virtual lockdown. You understand what he's saying? The point of such top-down censorship is not only to control the public mind, it's also to keep us all from finding each other. It truly did work for a very long time. It took nearly a year for the group that we now know as the anti-lockdown movement to form. And even when Brownstone was founded, he says, I hadn't known about Justin Hart's rational ground, but now, of course, they work very closely. Excellent article here. I hope you'll take the time to read it. Jeffrey Tucker says, look, two Christmases came and went when we were told that meeting and celebrating the season was a biohazard and not recommended. In some cases, it was forbidden. And he says, it's hard to imagine a more grim policy, and it still shocks us to think back and realize that it was all deliberate. One means to reverse this horror is to simply find friends, celebrate together, share stories and ideals, promote peace and love, and work to rebuild what we've lost. Marvelous. Marvelous article. Okay, here's one that I'm, I'm going to warn you right now. This is going to trigger some folks, but I think it still needs to be talked about. I know nobody wants to hear the words, I told you so, so I'm just going to note that you are informed thusly when it comes to the vaccine. Steve Kirsch is wondering, why can't we talk about sudden deaths, any of the sudden deaths? The Director of Parliamentary Affairs at Health Canada during the pandemic is dead 
at 35 years of age. He led the team of Canada's response to COVID. Why do they keep this silent? Steve Kerr says this death got no coverage. Do you have any idea why? There are so many people who help promote the narrative who have died suddenly, including Oracle VP Joel Kalman, the guy who created the V-Safe Adverse Event Reporting System, and at least one member of the team who voted to approve the UEA, I'm sorry, the EUA. Maybe someone in the comments can help him on that one. He says not only was there no press coverage of this uh, Canadian official, dead at 35, Adam Exton passed away, but there was no cause of death listed. What a surprise. Three different obituaries listed here. No cause of death given. And Steve Kirsch says, Later I will be throwing down the gauntlet. I'll be challenging CDC Director Rochelle Walensky to a debate. And he says, By the way, later today, uh, um, I want to have that debate with her in order to settle. Who's telling misinformation and who isn't? For the CDC, it's an opportunity for them to redeem their reputation, which is now in the toilet, which you can clearly see from the poll he just did on Twitter. Yeah, he asked, who is spreading more information about misinformation, rather, about COVID vaccines and COVID mitigation measures like masking, lockdowns, and social distancing, is it? CDC, misinformation spreaders, not sure. 91.7% said, yes, the CDC. 5.3% said misinformation spreaders. Not sure, that was about 2.9%. So if you haven't voted in the above poll, he says, please do so. So the CDC realizes it wasn't just the 8,600 people who voted. They may claim, well, you didn't survey enough people to have a statistically significant result. Maybe they'll claim bias as well. I'm glad to see him asking these questions, and I understand this is really hard. This is not something that I think many people want to face. But I'm seeing more and more stories start to come out where health officials are reluctantly saying, ah, there may be a problem with the vaccine, or there may be increased chances of myocarditis or other heart issues or blood clots or so forth. And, and I just, I have to point this out. You know, I, it's sad that I would even have to do this, but you know the crazy thing about it? The people who were so nasty, let the unvaccinated die. Let them just, you know, let them gargle themselves to death, you know, on their own, you know, spit. And, and anyway, just because they were unvaxxed, they're the cause of all of our problems. They wished death on us. And as I watch these people who were hardcore vaccine advocates starting to die suddenly, I don't see the celebration on the part of the so-called anti-vaxxers. Now, maybe I don't see a lot of sackcloth and ashes either, but my point is, there was only one side that was actively wishing death on the other. And it was the pro-vaccine, you know, zealots who were doing that. How sad to start to see so many of these promising young lives snuffed out for reasons that, you know, again, have not been made clear, but the, but the fact that we're being told, well, you can consider any cause of death, climate change, whatever it may be. Maybe it's just information like you're trying to put out there. That's what's causing them to die. Anything except the vaccine. Sure makes you wonder, why did they push it as hard as they did? All right. One final note here. And this is uh, kind of, I, I thought this was a really interesting article from D. Parker. This was on AmericanThinker.com. I only share this because if you are very serious about thinking for yourself, you need to watch carefully 
for anyone who seeks to change the meanings of words in order to control ideas. D. Parker says surrendering to the far left on language is a losing strategy. He says everybody has their own special talents and as a collective, the anti-liberty left has a distinct ability to promulgate big and little lies with language. Lying leftists, yes, he says, I know that's both repetitive and redundant, are masters at mendacity and the greatest at gaslighting. Anti-liberty authoritarians of the fascist far left tend to be failures at everything in life except being able to lie with the best of them. But, of course, this is a survival skill. White-tailed deer can move, can move quickly through the forest. Cuttlefish can blend in with their surroundings. And leftists must lie because no one with a modicum of sanity would support them other than in the cemeteries if they knew the true nature of their national socialist agenda. This is because their modus operandi has been consistently to fabricate a societal problem, then frame it as a crisis, all before absolving themselves of any guilt while simultaneously providing a pathway to power for themselves. Now, he says, Daniel Greenfield recently produced a video on the subject, Define the Crisis to Defeat the Left. And he makes the very good point that arguing with the fascist far left on their terms automatically places you at a disadvantage. The best example is when conservatives shoot themselves in the foot by referring to them as liberals. When we do, we are helping the left deceive everyone that they have the least bit of interest in the concept of liberty or acknowledging that there isn't a gun violence program, rather the left's pro-crime policy program. Arguing with the left about the details of the crisis, which conservatives are often prone to do, is defeatist. That's because it fights the battle on the left's territory and sets the stage for eventual defeat, which has happened over and over again. The only way, he says, to begin is to clearly define the crisis, robbing the left of the ability to impose a solution to a crisis it's manufactured. There is much more to this article, but I'm not going to have time to touch on it. The idea is it's worth defining your terms. Or if someone brings up something and you're not sure what they mean or where they're going with it, ask them to define their terms. Make them define their terms. If they refuse to do so, there's a pretty good chance you're dealing with someone who is not arguing in good faith, but merely trying to impose a viewpoint on you from which you're not, you're not allowed to dissent. You bigot. <laughs> you see how that works? Make them define them ter- their terms, rather. This is especially good with politicians. When they use a term like gun violence, ask them, what exactly does that mean? Because if you're talking about gangbangers shooting each other in the streets of Philadelphia... You know, that's a far cry from why I should need to give up my guns. It makes them very uncomfortable because it forces them to operate in reality instead of fantasy. This is The Brian Hyde Show.